Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday night. It is April the 8th, 2022, and the world continues to go nuts. Uh, My goodness gracious, where do we begin? Um, The war in Ukraine with Russia, um, the craziness with the Biden administration and Title 42, and add to that... um, recent disturbing situation at Yale University, and that brings us to my program today. Um, I want to start out by noting, and I've noted this before, but it's worth repeating every chance I get and every chance you get, perhaps. The death and destruction in Ukraine at the hands of Russia is because Russia does not recognize Ukraine's sovereignty and citizens of Ukraine have been paying the price, one hell of a price. Their country has been decimated. So many people have been killed, including women and children. The carnage is off the charts all over that one word, sovereignty. And you have gallant, valiant Ukrainians going in harm's way, many of them getting badly injured and killed, defending the sovereignty of their own country. Meanwhile, in sharp contrast, Joe Biden and the other globalists of our country can't give America's sovereignty away quickly enough, and Title 42 is the latest example. We're going to get to that in a bit, pardon me, but before we do that, I just wrote an article for Front Page Magazine. Uh, I hope that after the program you will go and read my article at Front Page, and then I hope you will share the link to my article with everybody you can. Uh, I really want to create a bucket brigade of truth. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with me know my background. I was a um, communications arts and science major back when I was in college. I jokingly call it my B.A. and B.S., but in reality, communication skills are essential. I wish there was much more emphasis placed on those skills when we educate our children rather than the wacky nonsense that's passing for a curriculum in all too many schools these days. The best ideas in the world go nowhere if you can't convince other people. (coughs) Pardon me. Goodness. Kermit the Frog is visiting, I guess. I had a wonderful professor back at Brooklyn College, Tom Lovely, one of many. And Tom used to say that you cannot sell a product, a service, or a concept if you need more than 10 words, I would argue, 15 words. But then we need to go well beyond that because those 10 or 15 words really constitute a soundbite. And it seems that today in America, that's all we hear, a soundbite. And it seems that in America, both sides <clears throat> see this as a food fight, and that's, that's tragic. We as adults, we as Americans, should be open-minded and willing to listen to other people's viewpoints, even when they contradict us. In fact, especially when they contradict us. Because if we cannot counter the arguments made by the other side, then maybe we have the wrong ideas. It's simple as that. I've changed my ideas over the years as information becomes available, as experiences make things obvious. As a federal agent, I carried a badge. I carried a gun. I could get on an airplane and fly anywhere in the United States with my gun on my hip. When I took my son to Disney World, He was four years old. We flew down. I had my gun with me on the airplane. I had my gun with me as we strolled through Disney World or Disneyland. We were in Florida. And and I flew back with it, and it was legal. So to me, the Second Amendment, not a big deal. Who cares? 
And sometimes we tend to be too egocentric. We see things through our eyes and not through someone else's eyes. And I remember going to Arizona. I traveled all over the United States participating in speaking events and debates and uh, providing testimony at trials and hearings and uh, legislative hearings and so forth. And a gentleman who had come from New Jersey and moved to Arizona bought himself a big old caddy Escalade. It was like a covered wagon. And the reason I say covered wagon, because in the back of this truck, he had a shotgun and, goodness, boxes of ammunition and water and food and blankets. And I said, what is this? And he said, Mike, he said, out here you're on your own. This isn't New York. It's not New Jersey. And he said, as we drove, we were driving parallel to the border. Mexico was a couple of hundred feet uh, over to our left. We were were paralleling that U.S.-Mexico border. He said, you'll notice roots or ruts, rather, carved in the road, grooves carved into the road, and we were bumping over them as we drove. He said, you know what created those grooves? I said, no. He said, you have smugglers in the dead of night dragging all kinds of stuff into our country, mostly narcotics, but God knows, maybe weapons also. It was an eye-opener. And he said, if you try to call for help, this was about 20 years ago, he said, take your cell phone and see how many bars you have on the phone. Well, I had zero bars. I couldn't use that phone. It was as useless as a paperweight. He said, what do you do if we're in trouble out here? He said, you can't call for help. And he said, police are so rare out here that if you do manage to get through, you're probably not going to see anybody with a badge and a gun for for a half hour. He said, so by then, they'll just be here to put up crime crime scene tape. He said, so we have to be able to defend ourselves. And this was a new aspect to this whole notion about the Second Amendment for me as a New Yorker, and I had just retired from the old INS. It was disconcerting. And he said, by the way, during the day, the smugglers don't usually come across the border, but at night they do. We should be safe. But if there's any issue, you know how to handle a shotgun. I said, yes, I had to qualify with one as an agent. He said, well, I've got a forty-five on my hip. If anything happens, you grab for the shotgun, and I'll, I'll take care of business with my sidearm. And I agreed with him, thinking, my gosh, we're in the middle of nowhere. And then over dinner, we talked about the Holocaust. And he said, think about how Hitler disarmed the Jews so that it made it that much easier to kill them. I was sold. Suddenly, my view of the Second Amendment changed. It changed because of my experience driving along the Mexican border. It changed when we had that discussion about the Holocaust. My own family was decimated in the Holocaust. I was named for my mother's mother, my grandmother, who was killed because we're Jews had a profound impact. That's just one example of a situation where fact and a discussion caused me to modify my position on a critical issue. Nobody has all the answers. And my parents told me, if you ever meet someone who tells you they have all the answers, run for your life. We as Americans should welcome open debate and discussion. It must be polite, it must be respectful, it should be fact-driven, no accusations, none of that nonsense. That's not acceptable. And, you know, I was going to teach debate on the college level. I'm a very big fan of debate. I've been debating since high school. Wow, it's hard for me to believe. Well over a half century, 60 years I've been debating, 60 years. Think about that. And it becomes second nature. But when you have to defend your position in a debate, that's when you really know how well you understand your side of the argument. And you should really understand both sides, or sometimes there's multiple sides. In fact, I had a debate coach who wouldn't tell us which side of the argument we were going to be taking until 30 minutes before the debate. You're not prepared to defend your side or promote your side until you understand your opponent's perspective and viewpoint. It's just that simple. And when I started doing television interviews after 9-11, and I've done thousands of them by now, by the way, I'm going to be on Newsmax tomorrow around 9.30 in the morning East Coast time to talk about Title 42, and we're going to talk about it here shortly. So if you get a chance, tune in, Newsmax TV. Uh, they've been giving me quite a bit of opportunity to, to, to get my voice and my, uh, my ugly old mug out there. 
and, and I really appreciate that because we need to have these discussions. The debate is intellectual capitalism, and I wrote about that in my article for Front Page Magazine. What I mean by that is that in capitalism, there's competition. I bring my ideas to the debate. My opponent brings his or her ideas to the debate, and then the consumers get to decide what they want to buy, which argument carries the, the day for them. Think about that. When people try to shut down debate, they do so because they don't want you to be able to voice an opinion that varies from their own. And we've gotten into a food fight mentality because, as I saw on TV, um, shortly after I started doing appearances, I had many producers say to me, we want a food fight. I said, what do you mean you want a food fight? I don't get it. Well, it's good TV. It's good for ratings. We're going to put a guy up there, and you're going to argue with him and talk over him. Don't let him talk over you. And I said, how much time will we have? Well, you'll have about three and a half, four minutes. I said, so in four minutes, we're talking about national security. We're going to have a food fight where if I'm lucky, I'll get one or two coherent sentences out there. It was very disappointing, very frustrating. But I never turned down an opportunity to be on television because my feeling was then and is now, um, whatever I could get out there might help to get people to understand the issue. Newsmax tends to not do that, by the way, to their credit. Generally, I'll come on. We'll be doing a panel discussion tomorrow. But usually it's either a one-on-one or two people, and it really isn't a food fight. We should be doing better than that. This isn't a reality show. This is reality. Big difference between a reality show and reality. And I don't have to agree with you on every issue, and I don't like labeling. Well, are you a conservative or are you a liberal? Are you serious? No, I'm Mike Cutler. I'm an American. And on some issues, you may agree with me. On other issues, you may not agree with me. And that's cool. That's what the First Amendment is about. I have the right to my opinion. You have the right to your opinion. It doesn't make us enemies. It makes us good Americans if we're able to sit down and have a coherent, fact-based, respectful discussion, debate, argument, whatever you want to call it. And I've had occasion on some programs where the host will say, my gosh, You attacked Ronald Reagan. You can't do that. You're going to piss off my audience. Well, how did I attack Ronald Reagan? I talked about the Reagan amnesty of 86. I talked about how Reagan got behind the visa waiver program, how Reagan got behind the diversity visa, and then it was George George Herbert Walker Bush who signed it into law, the visa lottery, so-called. He was wrong. And then immediately, well, the Democrats fooled him. Well, first of all, he was the president. He should have been better than to be fooled by the Democrats. But I've never seen evidence to that effect. Bill O'Reilly did a whole program where he talked about he couldn't find any evidence that that Ronald Reagan was misled, and that's why he did the amnesty. But no matter what the issue is, why in the world are we defending politicians, folks? And I don't care where they're from. I don't care what side they're on. Let's look at the facts. If we're going to solve the problems, We need to stop being defensive, and we need to start being fact-oriented. The reality is the visa waiver program is dangerous. The reality is that amnesty was a disaster, and it led to expectations of future amnesties, and here we are today. It was wrong, period. And it's both parties that have done this to us. But you have people on both sides of these arguments that are entrenched. You're with me or you're against me. And if you disagree with me or you disagree with this candidate or that, then you're the enemy. I'm not the enemy. What I want is an America that lives up to Abraham Lincoln's lofty view that ours was a country of the people, by the people, and for the people. I would actually make an argument that although we've always been taught that our government has three branches, three branches, judiciary, Uh, the executive and the legislative branch, right? I actually would argue there's four branches. They always leave out the one branch that they try to ignore at every opportunity, the one branch that should be uppermost in everyone's consideration. You know what branch I'm talking about? The branch called We the People. We the People. Ostensibly, we hire and fire these people that are on the political side, right? Ostensibly, they're there because they derive their power 
from we the people. We elect them or we unelect them. Our taxes pay for their programs that they create. So how in the world is we the people not considered an important branch of our government? We sit there as spectators and we watch the damage they do on both sides of the aisle. It's not what they do for us, it's what they do to us. And that's why I would argue that we need to have a new philosophy and a new mindset. We the people is the fourth branch of the government of the United States of America, and we the people need to keep these political characters in line, period. If they're insubordinate, do with them what you would do if you were an employer or what would happen with you if you were insubordinate to your employer. You get fired. You get canned. You get shown the door. <clears throat> They're being insubordinate. I can't remember the last time I heard a so-called journalist ask a politician, how are your proposals in the best interest of America or Americans? Why is nobody at the White House asking Jen Psaki, how is abandoning Title 42 in the best interest of America or Americans? All we hear about is what the immigrants want. All we hear about is what corporations want. Again, leaving out the fourth branch of our government, we the people. And the contempt that the politicians show for we the people is palpable. And we're seeing it across the board. Look at what happened with defund the police. This was a relatively local issue. And, of course, the Republicans were right there, and you had Kamala Harris bailing out the rioters, people that were destroying buildings and injuring people. We're going to bail them out. It was a peaceful demonstration, baloney. What had happened? New York used to be the safest big city in the United States. I have issues with Rudy Giuliani. I know Rudy. We interacted occasionally when I was an agent, and he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. I bumped into him on a number of occasions at, at functions and so forth. <clears throat> I, I have no ill will towards him. I didn't agree with him on some issues. But he was right when he talked about broken windows and going after the small crimes so that people wouldn't commit bigger crimes. He cleaned up Times Square. Times Square was an absolute disgrace. It was a nightmare, and it's becoming that again. Back then, you had all the strip places and the drugs and the hookers. It was a disaster. He cleaned it up. We had these squeegee characters running around cleaning your windshield, sometimes with, with dirty diapers, believe it or not. And he had the police arrest them. It worked. Giuliani had the philosophy of a prosecutor, and a prosecutor defends the public. You know, we talk about public defenders, meaning the lawyers who, who, who um, represent the criminals or the accused. Well, in a very real sense, prosecutors are public defenders. They're defending the general population, aren't they, when you twist the words a bit? And he was successful. If you were caught with a firearm, you went to jail. There was no discussion. Some woman walked in to the memorial for 9-11, the World Trade Center location, Ground Zero, had a gun. They arrested her. I didn't know that, I, that my carry permit wasn't good in the year. Too bad, lady. I think eventually they, they you know, drop the charges, whatever. But it, it was a serious deal. If you were caught with a firearm, you were in a world of trouble. Guess what? People stopped carrying guns. I mean, they were out there. I arrested quite a few people who had firearms. But the numbers were down. The violence went down. Under Dinkins, under Mayor Dinkins, we had about 2,000 homicides in a year. 2,000 homicides in a year. I mean, it blows your mind. And suddenly we had a couple of hundred. Now, even if one is, is, you know, is, is more than is acceptable. But to go to a couple hundred after you were at 2,000 is certainly progress. So if they don't broke, don't fix it. So, so what do they do? Well, we have to have criminal justice reform. We have to have bail reform. What is criminal justice reform? Well, it's not fair that people who are poor wind up going to jail for nonviolent crime. Tell you what, I would agree with that also. If you're a... You know, you were arrested and charged with driving without a license. Why should you be in jail because you couldn't post a few hundred dollar bond? Obviously, and this isn't a race thing, by the way. This is an economic thing, right? 
there are many black people that I know that are quite wealthy and they'd have no problem posting, you know, a, a reasonable bail. <clears throat> but everyone wants to make this into a race. Everything is race. COVID was race. By the way, there's now research showing that DNA, and I, I suspected this was the case, DNA may well have a strong bearing on whether or not you contract COVID and how ill you become. That goes against what the people that want to create animosity among various races, divide and conquer, you know, the enemy within. So if someone, you know, is driving without a license, should he be in jail? I don't think so. If somebody has committed other minor offenses, should they be in jail? Probably not. If they can't post bail, there's got to be a way to work things out. Seriously. Um, we should try to have equal justice for everybody, irrespective of race, religion, ethnicity, or economics. Or economics. One of the things that disturbs me greatly is you get charged with a crime, <clears throat> and you could you know, be driven into the poorhouse by defending yourself, and then it turns out you were not guilty. And nobody ever makes restitution to the guy or the gal <clears throat> who gets prosecuted and is found not guilty, but they spend the fortune on, on criminal defense attorneys. This problem is within the system. Should we reform the system? Yes. Nothing is, is so good it couldn't be made better or so bad it couldn't be made worse. My dad used to say that all the time. But suddenly we started to see something interesting. It wasn't simply people that committed nonviolent crimes being released without bail. We had lots of people who were committing violent crimes being released without bail. And suddenly carrying a gun didn't necessarily mean you were going to go to jail. And all kinds of other crazy things started to happen. And so what started to happen? And, and you add to that the fact that people were wearing the mask because of COVID. And I had said that to some people. I said, you know, with everybody running around with masks, they all look like bank robbers. Crime is likely to go up. That was one of my first thoughts. Because with the mask, you get anonymity. Even though there's cameras everywhere, if you're wearing a mask, who knows who you are? And sure enough, suddenly we started to have all these people stealing packages, you know, the so-called porch pirates, and then you had robberies, and you had mayhem. And meanwhile, the backdrop was the lunatic left saying, well, we need bail reform. We need criminal justice reform. We shouldn't be locking people up. It's not fair to these people that are accused of crimes. Well, okay, but again, we didn't just talk now about nonviolent crimes. Now we're talking about muggings and all kinds of things, assault, resisting arrest. Now, resisting arrest is a particular concern, and, and the reason is this. If you've never made an arrest, you probably won't realize what I'm about to say, but I hope it makes sense to you. You're probably going to think about it afterwards and say, gee whiz, Cutler was right. If a law enforcement officer makes an arrest or tries to make an arrest and the person that he or she is attempting to arrest resists, this could quickly turn into a life-and-death struggle because that law enforcement officer has a firearm. If the person they are trying to arrest resists and starts throwing punches, I've been there, by the way, now you realize that if this individual can overpower you, they can get to your firearm, you could be dead, your partner could be dead, other people could be dead. This is a struggle for your life, okay? Resisting arrest doesn't generally end well. And in fact, if you look at the one common denominator of the great majority of people who die when interacting with police, and it's not just blacks. In fact, more whites than blacks are killed by the cops, by the way. But the media doesn't want to talk about that either. But if you look at it, the great majority, I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm willing to say it's well over 90%, of the people who die interacting with police were resisting arrest when the tragedy happened. Whether it was George Floyd, we get down the whole list. Resisting arrest escalates and suddenly shots fired. Um, someone gets grabbed by the throat. So then they say, well, you can't touch anyone's throat. And now you've got law enforcement wearing cameras. <clears throat> so some guy can grab a cop or a federal agent by the throat but if the agent's hand touches the throat of the guy that they're trying to arrest, God help them, because if you have some crazy prosecutor, that law enforcement officer can wind up getting prosecuted. No, no chokehold, no choke. 
Never mind that the other guy is beating you over the head with a brick, okay? Don't you dare test in and, and, and the heat of the battle. You're rolling around on the ground. Should that agent have to worry, gee, did my hands get too close to that guy's throat? But that's where we are. It might sound good. We're not allowing the chokehold. However, what happens in the heat of battle when you're fighting with someone and you're having that life-and-death struggle? Should that even be a consideration that impedes the officer who's trying to subdue an individual that he's trying to take into custody? Now, if I had a magic wand, I would double the penalty for resisting arrest. Why? To discourage people from resisting arrest. What do you have prosecutors doing? Saying they're not going to prosecute for resisting arrest. Well, that's going to encourage more people to resist arrest. And what's that going to lead to? Two things. Cops are going to be much more reluctant to try to make an arrest in the first place. You know, we used to have an expression at work, big cases, big problems, little cases, little problems, no cases, no problems. If you don't notice the guy running the red light and you don't pull him over, then you don't get into a fight when he resists you and you ask him to step out of the car. So who cares that he ran the light? He didn't hit anybody. Let's ignore it. Broken windows in reverse. We're going to ignore everything but the most violent crimes that we witness. That starts a downward spiral. That causes an erosion of the authority that law enforcement has and needs to have in order to safeguard the public. Think about that. But you're also encouraging the physically big guys to resist the rest. Nothing's going to happen to me. If I can punch the cop in the face and get away, nothing's going to happen. Suddenly, you have people resisting arrest. And you may well wind up with more tragedies. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would the prosecutors who are supposed to be on the side of defending the safety of the citizens of the city act on behalf of the criminal, not the victims? In essence, we've turned prosecutors in many jurisdictions into criminal defense attorneys. How did that happen? So the defund police movement is not popular. And even the liars who call themselves political leaders are distancing themselves. Oh, I never said defund the police. Yeah, here's this video. Oh, are you going to believe that video or are you going to believe me? Well, that is you in the video. Well, I never said that. Is that you in the video? Yep. Is your mouth moving? Yep. Didn't you say defund police? Mm, You misunderstood me. Sure thing. So they're distancing themselves from defunding the police, and people are happy. Well, don't get too excited, because the police are only one link in the chain, and a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Guess what is now the weakest link in the law enforcement chain? The prosecutors in many jurisdictions. How did that happen? Well, that brings me to my article for Front Page Magazine. My article was predicated on a March 17th news report this year, last month. And the headline was, Liberal Yale Law Students Derail Bipartisan Free Speech Event at a Chaotic Protest and Police are Called to the Scene. Now, this is interesting because this event was sponsored by the Federalist Society at Yale University. On a personal note, about 10 or 12 years ago, I forgot exactly what year it was, I was invited to participate in a debate at Yale Law School. And I was very happy to do so. I was honored. And it was really cool. I walked into the main building on campus, and I'm greeted in the main entranceway by this huge easel with a poster on that easel, and the poster was me. It had my face. It was bigger than life, God help us all. And it announced that I was going to be participating in a debate sponsored by the Federalist Society into the issue of comprehensive immigration reform. And we had a wonderful debate. The people that disagreed were certainly respectful. They were decent. It was was an enjoyable event. I always enjoyed debate. This was my thing. We had a debate, and and everyone shook hands. We went out. We had dinner afterwards. Couldn't have been more cordial. Couldn't have been more respectful. So here we are now, not then, and everything is turned on its ear. If there's any profession that should respect the First Amendment and free speech, it should be lawyers. Trials are debates, aren't they? We talk about moot courts. Moot courts. 
trial is a debate. So where are we going with this? Will the day come, God forbid, where some judge will look at the, the information and say, we don't need a stinking trial. This guy's guilty of sin. Let's dispense with the trial because we don't even need to hear what the other guy has to say. If God forbid that day ever comes, we're done. We then have become a police state. No rights. Innocent till proven guilty, says who? We don't have to listen to you. Think about how dangerous this is. Think about the path that we're going down. Think of what this will mean for our children and grandchildren, God forbid, if we don't nip this insanity in the bud. So let me begin by reading to you just the beginning, and it's on my article. You can get all this when you, when you check out my article at front page. <clears throat> but the report uh, that was done by Fox News started this way. A bipartisan panel on civil liberties at Yale, at Yale Law School was disrupted last week when more than 100 law students tried to drown out and intimidate the speakers who eventually needed a police escort to escort them out of the building, according to reports. The school's Federalist Society hosted the March 10th panel, which featured Monica Miller of the Progressive American Humanist Association and Kristen Wagner of the Conservative Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF. About 120 student protesters showed up with signs attacking the ADF to shout down the speakers with one reportedly recorded on audio telling a member of the conservative group that she would literally fight you, B. I'm going to guess B is bitch here. It was disturbing to witness law students whipped into a mindless frenzy. I did not feel it was safe to get out of the room without security, wagging to tell the Washington Free Beacon. The Fox News report also included this important observation by Wagoner. Wagner later tweeted, my hot take, good lawyers win with civility and persuasion, not physical intimidation and threats of violence. We aren't afraid to engage with people and ideas we disagree with. Apparently, many of the students missed this lesson. This is beyond disturbing. Lawyers from Yale Law School very often, besides practicing law for major law firms, go on to become judges, they go on to become CEOs and high corporate executives, they go on to become political leaders in America. If law students don't understand or are not willing to accept the notion of free speech and the guarantees that the First Amendment provides, freedom of expression, we are in deep, deep doo-doo. This is insanity. This should scare the hell out of everybody. For law students to not be willing to engage in a debate that are attempting to resort to intimidation and threats of violence, it turns our notion of criminal justice and the Constitution, which should be at the heart of what every lawyer does, turns all of that on its ear. That's how dangerous this is. So if you wonder this notion, you say, well, wait a minute, how did this happen? How did this happen? So I started doing some digging. So in my digging, I, by the way, there's a term that I first heard being used in reference to the American Civil Liberties Union. I used to be a very big defender of the ACLU. You know, the notion was I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Alan Dershowitz actually um, was involved with the case in Skokie where the KKK marched through this Jewish community where many of the residents were Holocaust survivors, and he actually defended the free speech of the Nazis, which made him very controversial, and I understand why it was controversial. I don't know if I could have done it, but under our law and under our concept of the First Amendment, everyone is entitled to free speech unless you're calling for violence. That's pretty much it. And by the way, I like the idea of knowing where, where, where jack, jackasses stand so we know who they are. If you're going to stand up there and say some pretty outrageous stuff, we shouldn't be stopping you. We need to know who you are. You're outing yourself. Think about that. That's how I've always looked at it. I'm always happy to let some fool prove to the world how big a fool he or she is. Free speech helps in that regard. Think about it. Right? The term lawfare is something that, that came into play and lawfare has been defined as legal action undertaken as part of a hostile campaign against a country or group. Lawfare. 
rhymes with warfare, so that the lawyers become warriors of change. Okay, think about that, lawfare. So you have lawyers at one of America's premier law schools angry about the First Amendment, resenting the First Amendment, operating in opposition to shut down debate in opposition to the First Amendment. Are they going to go on to be lawyers? They're going to go on to be corporate leaders and judges and politicians? This does not bode well for America or Americans or our expectations of freedom. That's what's on the line. This is a direct attack on the First Amendment, and as a consequence, this is a direct attack on the Constitution of the United States of America. Think about the implications. Don't forget these implications. And have this discussion with your friends and neighbors so that they understand. But then you say, well, how did this happen? What is going on in these schools? What are they teaching them that stand there in defiance of the First Amendment and threaten? Well, here's something interesting. What I discovered in doing my research is that on February 21st, this year, 2022, Yale Law School issued a press release. The title, Yale Law School announces tuition-free scholarships for the highest-need students. Now, you may or may not agree with me, and that's cool. I, I, I keep saying it, but I want everyone to understand that we are entitled and we should disagree when we really disagree. Why not? Why not? I don't care if it's school prayer. I don't care if it's abortion. I don't care if it's the Second Amendment. That's how freedom of speech works. It may not be neat. It may be messy. It may be frustrating. But that's what freedom of speech means, that I can take a position different from yours. And I have many friends where we don't agree on everything. And we're very close friends. Goodness. It's sad that I have to even emphasize this. This used to be the birthright of Americans. Stand up and say what's on your mind. There's a great song of the, 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 the town I live in, I believe, sung by Frank Sinatra. Others have done it, but no one did it better than Sinatra. And there's a line, um, the right to speak your mind out, that's America to me. That's one of the lines in that song. We should all be in favor of that right to speak our minds out. It's part of our tradition. It's part of our Constitution. So my belief, and again, you may agree or disagree, is that a good thing that could be done to help break the cycle of poverty is to provide free college for American children, American children, not lawful immigrants, not DACA, American children of every race, religion, and ethnicity. If they are unable to pay for school, we should be providing them with a free education in college, provided it's in a profession where we need the workers. Look at it this way. We've spent some money to educate them now. They live a much better life. They are then economically advantaged to the point where they will become taxpayers and good consumers, and that helps the economy grow. That's what we saw in the 50s. All these GIs came back from World War II with the GI Bill. They went to school. They became educated. They became successful, and the middle class exploded. Two cars in every driveway, and everybody was happy. How many people can't even afford one car today? Can't afford a tank of gas today. Okay? So my attitude is, and by the way, we have to go to at least high school, or for the most part high schools, up to age 16 in some states. Why? Because it was recognized you cannot have a democratic country if you don't have educated electors, electorate. That's the point. The democratic process requires informed, educated voters, the electorate. We, the people, we come back again to the fourth branch of government. So I'm okay with this. I think that's fine. Um, I had lost my parents when I was in college. My tuition was very, very small. I was going to a municipal school. I went to Brooklyn College, part of the City University of New York. And because the tuition was sufficiently low, I was able to finish my degree and go on to become a federal agent. I don't know what would have happened if I would have been forced to pay a high tuition because I certainly didn't have the money. I was on my own since I was 21. Uh, so I was thrilled to death that my tuition was just a few hundred dollars a semester. I mean, back then, a few hundred dollars isn't what it is today, but it was still relatively cheap. And it made all the difference in the world. 
That's how you break the cycle of poverty. Educate children, give them a successful uh, start. Not an indoctrination into why I hate America. This has to stop. By the way, I don't know if you saw Sean Penn, but apparently I was told that he complained that Americans are nothing like the people of Ukraine who are united, they, they have guts, and what happened to America? Well, what happened to America is Holly Weird and all these other nimrods who are trying to tear down our country, take down the flags and take down the statues and shut down free speech and convince Americans that they're living in a crappy country. Let me tell you, what's and all, if you think America is a terrible country or a terrible place, um, waiting in the wings are people, countries that want to destroy America. I'd love to see how these nitwits would fare under a communist regime. China, North Korea, Iran, Russia, lots of luck. America needs it to be strong and united to defend freedom. While these nimrods are tearing freedom down and you have people like Sean Penn wondering what happened to America. Look in the mirror. Look in the damn mirror. But I digress. What caught my eye about this notion of free tuition, which I thought was a good thing, I suddenly realized that maybe it's not such a good thing. Not because we're talking about free education, but because of what they apparently want to do in educating those law students. Let me read the last paragraph of that press release. It's an eye-opener, folks. Listen carefully. Again, I'm quoting now from Yale. At Yale Law School, we prepare lawyers and leaders to face the most critical challenges of the future and effect change across every sector of society, said Gherkin. That's the professor running the program. We are committed to ensuring every student can fully immerse themselves in our vibrant intellectual experience and has the tools and resources they need to leave their mark on the world. The Hearst Horizon Scholarship Program cements our commitment to access and equity for all. Not liberty and justice for all, but uh, equity and uh, access and equity for all. Change what? Change what? Change the philosophy, perhaps, that the First Amendment is sacrosanct and must be respected, must be abided by? Is that what we're talking about? I don't know. But I will tell you that when they talk about we need to affect change across every sector of society, apparently every sector of society is pretty crappy because we've got to change it. Showing words. Showing thought. It's important we understand what's happening. And so when you consider what's being spoken about or written about in that press release affecting change across every sector, every sector, uh, and then you see law students threatening violence because someone came onto the campus and took a different viewpoint, and some of those nimrods even were yelling that by having the police on campus, their lives were threatened because police officers are dangerous. Police officers have a role to play in the criminal justice system, they should be studying the laws that comprise the criminal justice system as well as other legal systems within America. So the cops are dangerous. We're not going to listen to anybody that disagrees with us. And apparently, Yale University is recruiting and training lawyers so that they can affect change across every um, sector of society. Very disconcerting. Connecting the dots creates a picture that's not very pretty. Now, I, I want to quickly touch on Title 42 once again. I started out by talking about sovereignty. And I've said it before, that when Donald Trump went to the U.N., the one word that came out of his mouth that sent world leaders running to the bathroom was the S word, sovereignty. Sovereignty. Without sovereignty, we have no control over who's in the United States. Without sovereignty, we have no way of keeping drugs and weapons out of our country. We exercise sovereignty as individuals. Most homes come equipped with a sturdy front door and a peephole and a door lock and either a doorbell or some other signaling device. For what purpose? So that a stranger seeking entry has to let you know that they want to come in so that you could say no. 
You don't just saunter into the White House. You don't just saunter into the state capitol. You don't just saunter into some corporate office building. You are stopped by security at the front door, and you have to show ID, and it has to be agreed that you're there for a legitimate purpose, and you're given a visitor's pass, whatever, so that everyone knows who you are. And, and, and if you don't do that, you're trespassing, and if you trespass, you get arrested. And it's ironic because Chuck Schumer, just about, I think it was 2015, 2014, suggested a federal law that would make trespass on critical infrastructure or national landmarks a felony under federal law with a five-year jail sentence attached to it. And he said, I don't care if you're an adrenaline junkie or a criminal. Trespassing is dangerous, and when people trespass, they need to face significant consequences so that we deter this dangerous behavior. I agree with Chuck. One of those rare times. But Chuck and his buddies think that if you trespass on America, we should be giving you United States citizenship. Just stop and think about the enormity of that disconnect from reality, the hypocrisy of it all. Title 42 was used by President Trump because Ellis Island was a quarantine station. And in invoking Title 42, the president was saying that we are facing a significant health risk from a pandemic, covid And because of that, aliens who are without documentation, without visas and so forth, will not be permitted into the United States. Well, they shouldn't be permitted in any way, folks. I mean, you know, think about that. But he said, we're not going to let you in. And because of Title 42 and the potential to cause Americans to die or become seriously ill, we're going to protect Americans. My question for Joe Biden, as they keep talking about masks, and Fauci warns about a resurgence, and China has a lockdown, where is the benefit to the average American to open the floodgates to limitless numbers of people from other countries whose identities, backgrounds, affiliations with possible criminal or terrorist organizations are unknown and unknowable? Explain that to me. I want someone to tell me where is the benefit. And when Trump said we're going to keep people out from, it was seven or eight countries, I forget the number off the top of my head. To this day, Fox News will say these were Muslim-majority countries. No, the issue was we couldn't vet the citizens, and those countries had an affiliation with terrorism. And in fact, if you look at the president's authority to do that, it's crystal clear. Under Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182F, suspension of entry or imposition of restrictions by the president. Now, this is the law. This is the law. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, in other words, whether or not they even have green cards, right? Or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem to be appropriate. The president can step up and issue a proclamation that says, we will not allow a single foreign national into the United States even if they have green cards. It's legal. But everybody went bananas at the time because it was Trump and he was talking about national sovereignty. Think about that. Think about the fact that Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution states, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and against domestic violence. This is an organized invasion by the Biden administration. Why is nobody asking Jen Psaki or anyone else or the president, why are you acting unconstitutionally? Think about all this nonsense. The president was being unconstitutional when Trump didn't let aliens in. And they kept throwing the Constitution at everyone's face. Well, I wish that President Trump had the wherewithal to stand there and say, well, you better reread Article 4, Section 4. The states are to be guaranteed protection against invasion. Texas now has declared this to be an invasion, and I understand their frustration, and they've said they're going to put aliens on buses and ship them to Washington. It's a stunt. I hate to say it. And they're doing it because 
they can't do anything else. Even if they arrest illegal aliens, the states do not have the authority to deport them. So even if they put them in jail for a year, even if they put them in jail for two years for trespass or other crimes, only the federal government can deport aliens, and the federal government refuses to. And according to Fox News just a day or two ago, Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, Homeland Surrender, as I've come to call it, continues to maintain that the biggest threat that America faces, the biggest national security threat, believe it or not, radical whites, white extremists, white supremacists. That's the biggest threat America faces. I, I think any racial supremacist is a problem, by the way, but that's just me. But it's always, you know, white supremacists. White are the evil. Um, the last time I heard this kind of garbage, if you read what happened during the Holocaust, and I've always studied it because of the impact it had on my family, my first wife, may she rest in peace, her mother was in a concentration camp, her father's family was wiped out by the Nazi bastards. So the Holocaust wasn't just of academic interest to me. And it, be, it began with the scapegoating of Jews and gypsies and some other groups. Your, your life would be so much better if we could get rid of these people. And aren't we seeing that in Ukraine now with Russia? But we still have a attorney general and we still have a Secretary of Homeland Security who thinks that white supremacists are the biggest threat we face. As 100,000 people died last year of opiate overdoses, as gangs are flowing freely into the United States. When you look at all the violent crime, this is a don't ask, don't tell policy. I keep wondering how many of the violent criminals that are carrying out the shootings, the stabbings, and the rapings are actually aliens who shouldn't be here. I've arrested people wanted for murder in other countries, including England and Israel. Okay? This isn't about brown skin, green skin, purple skin, or, or, or stripes, because human nature is human nature. I used to argue bail for the U.S. attorneys because I was very good at it, and nobody got bail because bail only consists of two elements, risk of flight, danger to the community. We have no idea who's here. And when you have Kamala Harris saying that she's going to address the root cause, um, one of the generals, General Keene, over at Fox News made a point that I've been making forever. He said they have found aliens from 150 different countries trying to enter the United States illegally or being allowed into the United States, 150 countries. She's talking about Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico. Meanwhile, we've got people coming from Africa, Asia, Europe, everywhere, the Caribbean. Root cause? I wrote an article a while back. Uh, it was kind of a takeoff on, the, on the, the riddle, the joke, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Well, the title of my article was Why Did the Illegal Alien Cross the Border? And the point that I was making is we don't know. The person may be wanted for murder, rape, mayhem, and some other countries, so they are on the run and trying to outrun the long arm of the law in some other country. They're fugitives. Maybe they're coming here because they're criminals. They want to ply their trades here in America. They want to sell drugs. They want to engage in bank fraud. God knows. Maybe they're coming because they want to work. That would mean that they're taking jobs of Americans. Let's remember that the Labor Department used to be in charge of immigration to protect the wages and jobs of American workers. What a quaint notion. Protect the jobs of Americans, the fourth branch of the government, right? So we keep coming back to this issue of how is it in America's best interest that we take down our borders and we allow a human tsunami that they want to accelerate by taking down Title 42 that's supposed to protect us against aliens who may have deadly diseases, even as we've lost how many people? I think over a million now have died because of COVID and other diseases and so forth. What a terrible person I must be because I simply want our immigration laws to do what they were designed to do, what they were passed and acted to do, protect national security, public safety, public health, and the jobs and wages of Americans. If you go to Title Eight, United States Code, Section 1182, it enumerates the categories of aliens who are not to be allowed in. There's not a single word about race, not a single word about religion, there's not a single word about ethnicity. It's about aliens who have dangerous communicable diseases, who are seriously mentally ill, criminals, terrorists, spies, human rights violators, uh, fugitives from justice, 
human traffickers, drug smugglers, and then we get to aliens who would become a public charge, or if they worked, would displace American workers. That's what's in the law. So again, I ask, how is this in the best interest for the average American to take down the borders and permit everyone in, including potentially terrorists? Potentially terrorists. The 9-11 Commission was very clear about it. And again, I want to read something that's really very, very important, if I can find this darn thing before we run out of time. Um, Okay, here we go. On April 17th, 2018, the House Counterterrorism and Intelligence Subcommittee conducted a hearing on the topic of the state sponsors of terrorism and examination of Iran's global terrorism network. We know that Iran is racing to build nuclear weapons, and we know that even some Democrats now are becoming really worried and frightened about this negotiation that Biden is having with Iran, okay? And they're also very much concerned about the fact that he wants to take down Title 42, so here's something that is concrete. This isn't, uh, you know, conjecture. There was testimony that every witness at the hearing agreed with. The testimony was offered by Dr. Emanuel Ortolengue of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, 2018, about Iran operating throughout Latin America. Latin America. Not Middle East, Latin America. These are his words. In recent years, Hezbollah's Latin American networks have also increasingly cooperated with violent drug cartels and criminal syndicates often with the assistance of local corrupt political elites. Cooperation includes the laundering of drug money, arranging multi-ton shipments of cocaine to the United States and Europe, and directly distributing and selling illicit substances to distant markets. Proceeds from these activities finance Hezbollah's arms procurement, terror activities overseas, its hold on Lebanon's political system, and its efforts both in Lebanon and overseas to keep Shia's communities loyal to its cause, and complicit in its endeavors. Now, this last paragraph, I really want you to listen carefully. This toxic crime terror nexus, that is between Hezbollah and the traffickers, right, is fueling both the rising threat of global jihadism and the collapse of law and order across Latin America that is helping to drive drugs and people northward into the United States. It is sustaining Hezbollah's growing financial needs. It is helping Iran and Hezbollah consolidate a local constituency in multiple countries across Latin America, thus facilitating their efforts to build safe havens for terrorists and a continent-wide terror infrastructure that they could use to strike U.S. targets. What was the purpose of that hearing? After 9-11, I did so many hearings, I gave testimony to the 9-11 Commission, and all we kept hearing were these politicians standing at the microphones, pounding the podium, demanding to know why no one connected the dots. The dots have been connected. And Biden is not only ignoring the dots, but operating in direct opposition to the findings and recommendations of the 9-11 Commission and all these other experts who testified at subsequent hearings. How is this in the best interests of the United States of America? That is the question. And finally, this is the preface to the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they're unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe for the reasons we discussed in the following pages, it must be, make one, must be made one. Folks, the information is clear, the evidence is clear, the warnings are clear, and the law is clear. Biden is operating in direct opposition to the Constitution, to the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, and to the standing laws that are on the books today. The president took an oath to uphold the Constitution and the laws of this country. It's not a menu. It's not soup or salad. He signed, had to sign on for all of the above. You know, democracy is not a spectator sport. I urge you, have those conversations with your neighbors and get them to understand just how dangerous the situation is. Um, Please make certain to read my articles and share them with as many people as you can.
Hey, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week right here on the Michael Tucker Show. Always.